Hey, welcome to Biblical Foundation for Aesthetics, Horror Edition. Ooh, hey, I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient ghost. There's Ben Solzer. I'm here. Ben Solzer. That just sounds like you're a funky <laughs> dancer. <laughs> I might be. So, I mean, it's obvious. I didn't even know what to say. He's Yeah. Today, here, here, here to talk about the aesthetics of dance. The aesthetics of dance. Mm, that's going to have to be season <laughs> 15 or something. <laughs> Biblical foundation for aesthetics. No, we're talking about horror. We're doing a one-two punch of uh, new episodes. We just did one on humor that people will have listened to. Now we're going to do one on horror. But we can't talk about horror without <laughs> the spookiest person that we know, Ben so why don't you introduce them? Uh, Jake Mintz Killer, I think he's called. Yeah, got me. <laughs> oh, it's it's scary even to talk to you, Jake. How are you? How do I look? Scary. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's the only word that I know Pretty for you. spooky. <laughs> <laughs> this is such an atmospheric podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're scared of social unease. <laughs> 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 You're going to want to run away, right? You're going to want to run away. No, no, no. We're talking about humor, and we already talked about humor at length. You can listen to that one. But we're talking about horror. I'm Nathan. That's Pastor Jake. That's Ben. And I think it's interesting to talk about the two of them together, because I think that they actually fulfill similar functions. And maybe it'll be obvious. Maybe we'll, as we go, point out some things that are parallel to humor about horror. I mean, one very easily easily parallel I'll throw out there is that they are two genres that seek to evoke a visceral response and they either do or they don't work. You can go see a drama, you might cry, you might just be interested, you might be sad, whatever, it still works. You go see a action movie, your blood might really pump or you might just like, you know, there's different ways you might enjoy it. But you go see a horror movie, you were either shaking in your seat or it wasn't successful. You go and see a humor thing, a comedy, I think they're called. You were either laughing or you won't. I suppose there are, you can aesthetically appreciate something that doesn't evoke a visceral response in you, even in those cases. But you get my point. You can be amused. I think you can be amused. Yes, I'm watching this by myself. <laughs> There's no one else here. Laughter tends to be a social thing. I, I acknowledge that it's funny. I think we've all done that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and Ghostbusters came on TV. I'm by myself. I'm very sad. My family's gone away. Very amusing. Zool. Yes. We've done that. We've all done that. We've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> Our family has left us and we're watching Ghostbusters alone on cable television. And then we see Zool. We've all been there. And say, very amusing. Yes. Very amusing. Zool. Yes. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about what horror does, how it does it. I wanted to start by drawing the parallels to comedy, or at least throwing out one parallel. I may throw out some more. As we go, actually, let me throw out one more because I think it's kind of interesting. There's a reason, there's a good reason why we're doing these two together. I think that they are, and and why we're doing them now, as we record this, it's 2020, we're going into the election. The world is not a happy place, generally speaking. Fires in California, coronavirus. It's hilarious and horrific. Well, it's not, Jake. That wasn't my, (laughs) well, it is horrific and it is kind of hilarious, I guess. You may remember, if you already listened to our comedy segment, we talked a lot about the incongruous and the congruous and how comedy actually sort of helps us place ourselves, helps us see what normal is by establishing what abnormal is. And it, abnormal, of course, can only exist in relation to what's normal. And the funny can only exist in re- what's relation to serious. Horror is kind of similar. By establishing what evil is, what scary is, it establishes what good is, what the moral order should look like. Both of these things, I think, in a very visceral, primal way, help us to center ourselves, or as the case may be, hurt us in centering ourselves. But they do work. They do work to center us and to tell us what the order should be. And so they tend to be popular during times of social unrest. If you think about a lot of the great screwball comedies in the 1930s, a lot of those universal monster, you know, the original run of Dracula, Frankenstein, these all happened in the 1930s as we were going into World War II, as our boys were coming back with their bodies and their souls broken and battered and maimed. Like we had, and, and the world was changing. Women were going into the word force, blah, blah, blah. We had to like figure out how to deal with this. And so you have a lot of comedy and you have a lot of horror, which I 
will argue both things kind of by going to certain extremes help us establish what the hierarchy is, establish what the normal should be, establish who the gatekeepers are and all that kind of stuff, you know, and then things get a little bit more sedate in the late forties into the fifties, not a lot of great horror movies, not a lot of great comedies in those eras. Then you get to the sixties and suddenly we're doing these run of Vincent Price movies and splattery hammer horror films and stuff like that. And we're getting British comedy is becoming a thing in sixties into the seventies. And it's going to kind of die down again. And then you're going to get a, the battle between kind of the Christian right and uh, Reagan and the left kind of asserting it's, it's real, you know, bearing its neo-Marxist teeth in the eighties. And, Suddenly, we're going to get Friday the 13th and Halloween and all this stuff. Is it anyway? I don't need to trace the history of the 20th century. Just wanted to point out that these genres tend to be popular around times of social unrest. So, even if you're not like a big comedy guy or you're not a big horror fan, it might be good for you to know a little something about these genres and how they work because chances are your kid is, or somebody that you love is, or the culture around you. We'll be more interested in these kinds of things. Right now, we've got Lovecraft Country, not a show that I have watched or will watch. We've got horror movies are doing just fine. They're still coming out during coronavirus. We had going into 2020, some of the more sophisticated horror movies of the last 20 years coming out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Get Out and... Uh, Get Out and uh, Us Us and the Jordan Peele movies. Yeah, the Jordan Peele movies, just a different... Yeah, well, Jordan Peele's the guy that takes what's subtextual about a lot of these things and just makes them text. Like, these things are about social unrest and social unease. I'm just going to make movies about social unrest and social unease. The white people are out to get you black people, and the black people are out to get you white. Like, he's just being obvious about, I mean, Frankenstein, you know, the old, old lumbering Boris Karloff Frankenstein with, like, scars and stuff. I mean, he looks like a guy who came back from world war ii there's all kinds of subtext right but nowadays jordan peele can just be like it's text it's a thing that's just some establishing stuff we have some points we want to go through and talk about what horror is what horror does how you should think about it whether a christian should engage with it at all we'll answer all those questions as we go i think i think first we need a definition though so does anybody want to throw out a definition of what the horror genre does. Horror is a genre that brings you into contact with the things you fear. Comedy is a means of processing the incongruities of life. Horror is a means of processing. You could um, almost just say the incongruities the, of death. You could yeah. almost say the incongruities of death. N- that's or, good. Or just the yeah the the realities of it. I mean, maybe on the most simple level, just. It's a means of processing all that frightens us. Yeah. But on the most fundamental level, then that's going to pull us to death, judgment, and the evil that's out there, the unseen evil, the spiritual evil that's out there. I mean, at the end of the day, death is the final enemy. Death, I mean, if, if you wanted to just be obvious about it, you'd say death, sin, and Satan. These are the things that are actually scary yeah. in our lives. And at the end of the mm-hmm. day, Horror exists as a means of processing those things. Yeah. And it's not Mm -hmm. different in that sense than, and we'll get to this in its place, but in that sense, it's not all that different than uh, a a pagan blood cult. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. More more about that later. There's a lot of things we can say, but more about that later. Yeah. It exists to process what frightens us. I mean, that that has to be our definition because anything else, like if we say supernatural, then it's like, well, okay, Silence of the Lambs horror is a serial killer. Is Michael Myers like there for the purposes of our discussion today at least, let's just say if it if it exists to frighten you as an audience member and to make you process the things that scare you. Yeah. Um in a visceral and process yourself in relation to the things that scare you. Yes. Right? And that is an important put a pin in that thought, folks, because we're gonna come back to that. Yeah. Then it's horror. That's what it is. That's what it is. There are things that might have incidental horror elements like uh, Lord of the Rings or Indiana Jones or something. Like these are some things that frighten us and they happen to be in this thing. Yeah, Spielberg's always going to get a kick out of putting something. Mm -hmm. He's going to have jump scares. If it's an Indiana Jones movie, 
there's going to be corpses that pop up or skeletons, you know, one way or another. There's going to be those elements. Right. But but the difference between that and a horror movie is a horror movie is about an Indiana Jones movie is about Indiana Jones. He needs to get this treasure. And one of the things that he has to overcome is, oh, no, it's an icky skeleton. That it's makes, her. makes me face the fact that I'm going to die one day and death is scary and sucks and is ugly. Uh, that's one thing that he has to overcome. That's one right. of the things. If, if the movie was actually about Indiana Jones versus the fact that he is going to die and that a corpse has died, and then that's what makes it into a horror movie. And in fact, that's not what Indiana Jones does. Indiana Jones relegates horror. Right. And I think probably if you want a little teaser of what we'll say later, we're going to be a lot more comfortable with stories that use the elements of horror and relegate them to something than we are to stories that exist to just evoke fear and just deal with fear. Not that we don't, don't think those things should be dealt with, but... And that, there, and that there isn't a place for doing that. Right. But there's a way. There's a way to do it. And generally speaking, when you give it primacy, you're going to run into a lot of problems, which are just, we'll talk about them in the place, but they're pretty obvious. So we're going to talk about five things that we think the genre that exists to scare you and make you deal with your fears does. And let's just talk about them. So the first one is what, Ben? First one is that it reminds us of death and judgment and sin, just like we were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in in the most simple terms, a horror film or something in the horror genre is just going to confront you with the reality of death, which then, you know, it implies everything that's behind it. Death Mm -hmm. entered the world because of sin and death is God's judgment on mankind. And so it just reminds you that actions have consequences, Mm -hmm. that sin is real, that death is coming for you. And with that death comes the judgment of God against your own evil. Right. And against the evil in the world. All of those things are just sort of, that's the sandbox that the horror genre is playing in. Plus, very often, the spiritual realities behind all of those things including the spiritual principalities and powers, the idea that there is more than just matter here. There's an unseen world at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd say that even if even if it's not a supernatural horror movie, it evokes that because guilt is an unseen world. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Connected to the unseen reality of God who sees and is going to judge. That's right. And because evil is an unseen world, mm-hmm. you know, like... Hannibal Lecter may not be a supernatural force exactly. You know, a serial killer in one of those movies like Seven or Silence of the Lambs may not be explicitly supernatural. But in the the way that they function in those movies is almost mythic. It's almost supernatural. It's right. it's bigger than you know, a real serial killer is a very squalid and small human being who snuffs out life in a very small and disgusting way. But Hannibal way. Lecter exists to personify the devil. Yeah, he's he, the devil. He's, he's on on a plane with Dracula or whatever. Right. He wants right? to draw you into his world of darkness and depravity. He wants you to enjoy being drawn into it. And he wants to fundamentally shape who you are in relation to his world. That's like uh, O'Brien in 1984. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're that's gonna... a rabbit trail, but yeah. But yeah, it's, in some way, it's always going to be the, the shark in Jaws. It's not just a shark. It's the apotheosis of the fact that nature has gone wrong and it wants to eat us. Yeah. You know, there's nothing very scary about one shark, but Jaws is a movie that's terrified generations now because the idea there's something out there that wants to eat you. And is relentless. Yeah. And is supercharged. In Adam's fall, Mm -hmm. so sinned we all. Nature has been corrupted such that there are things out there that want to destroy you. And Jaws just... He typifies he, I guess he's my, my good friend mm-hmm. Jaws. He, <laughs> he reveals that to us. He he symbolizes that. It's not right? safe to go in the water. It's Turns not safe out. to go in the water. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, uh, Freddie says it's not safe to go asleep. Uh, sleep has been corrupted and, you know, people die in their sleep and they have nightmares. And so we're going to make a You genre. never know what's going to happen. If you're, if you're asleep, you're powerless. Mm-hmm. You, do, you have no control. And very little agency, and anything can happen. Right. And so let's play with that idea for a minute. And and Psycho says, you could be naked in the shower, and then you could be dead, and then something (laughs) terrible could happen. 
Yeah, you know, lost in your own world in the shower. How many times have you been lost in your own world in the shower? You have no idea what's going on in the world around you. Who might be creeping up on you with a knife? Yeah, and, and let me actually, I'm going to actually get it, because we're already talking about what I'm going to make into our second point, which is horror exists to throw these things into sharp relief. Like the, the actual dangers that most of us have in the shower is we could drown, we could slip. I mean, most of us aren't going to drown in the shower, but... Uh, there are life is attendant with mundane horrors, right? But you could it, slip and break your neck. It's a thing that could happen. It's, it's a thing that has happened to people, and it's right. sad and terrifying. And it to will continue to happen to people, right? Children have drowned in the bathtub because their their parents were negligent, or because their parents weren't negligent. But things happen. It's a broken yep. world, to use that cheesy cliche. You know, we have sin, we have death, things go wrong. Horror exists to exaggerate, though, and, and throw kids, that into sharper. Kids die just doing kid things and biking around their neighborhood. You know, car backs out of the driveway at the wrong time. Right. They get caught, you know, they fall through the ice or they, you know, fall into the retention pond or whatever, and it's muddy and they can't get out. Or clowns grab them. Right. <laughs> and pull them in. <laughs> well, most of us have to put up with the little fears about like uh, my kid could fall out of a tree and and, and crack open his skull we, we sort of we drive those things you know i mean freud would say we repress them you know we we don't want to actually think about that and so horror exists to exaggerate it all a little bit yeah and, and then say hey it could happen yeah it could happen and in the exaggeration of it it makes it safe to think about that's the thing that's not going to actually happen but it allows us to process the things that could. Yeah, it's, it's very or unlikely. the things that did. Yeah. It, or the it, things that have, yeah. Yeah, it's very unlikely that I will be stabbed to death in the shower. But the fact that bad things happen to the shower, in the shower to anyone, now I can sort of acknowledge that, I can think about it, and I can put it to bed, which is something that we'll be getting to right. later in our discussion. But yeah, I think that's a really important point, actually. Most of, we, we don't want to think about the fact that our uncle could be a sexual predator or that our parents could intend something bad for us, could want something that's not in our best interest. So we don't want to think about the mundane horrors that attend our lives, that a child could die. We don't want to think about these things. And so if you make it big, you make it splashy, you make it metaphorical, you make it overtly supernatural or overtly over the top. That makes it less scary. It actually makes it less scary. Which is the point. Which is the point. It, it lets us deal with that. Um, Dracula is less scary than Satan. So is Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. But none of us want to actually think about Satan. Yeah. The unrelenting judgment of God against the wicked, far more scary than Freddy or Jason, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing about it is God is so big and in a sense, these realities that attend us, sin is so big, death is so big, <laughs> the ways that you could die are so big. I just, I always think about the story that I read of a woman who was walking home, walked in, was walking through a puddle on a rainy day, and then a power line became disconnected, swung down, electrocuted the puddle, and she was dead. You know, it's like, I think Calvin has a section early in the Institutes where he just talks about like, how do you, how does a atheist, I think it's Calvin, how does an atheist get out of bed in the morning? He basically says like, when you think about all the terrible things that could happen to you, mm-hmm. when you think about the fact that you could get hit by an asteroid or a tree could break or you could have an aneurysm or yep. your kid could have an aneurysm. And we all know, like every one of you listening, every one of us, if we just stop and give ourselves 60 seconds, like hit pause and give ourselves 60 seconds, we can think of at least three or four people, five people maybe that we know that died in some freak way. Mm-hmm. Unexpectedly, there was a kid in elementary school or middle school or high school that you knew that died in some freak way. There was a kid who had a dad who died while you were in college or in high school in some freak way. Mm -hmm. Like, you know these people. It has happened. It has happened. And it seems, it can seem so cruel, uh, apart from God, apart from understanding and having faith in God and in his sovereignty. It can feel so cruel, it can feel so meaningless, it can feel so arbitrary, it can feel so anarchic. Mm-hmm. It's hard to deal with it. And so when you take those things, I mean, if, if you have to actually think about the fact, I could be eating food and I could choke and die. I could be just shoveling sustenance in me like I have to do. 
and yeah. I could aspirate something and then I'm facing death and judgment. Yep. Like that's how easy it is to suddenly be dead. Like it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around that. Mm-hmm. So if you turn it into final destination. Yeah. Final destination. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Wonderful movie. Millions of accidental death traps are around every quarter. Yeah. It's because we, uh, <laughs> we cheated death and now he's after us. Yeah. People didn't grow up with those wonderful, uh, <laughs> You know, if, if we can actually turn it into something like, it's not I'm going to choke. It's that there's this malevolent force called Michael Myers, and he's just out to get me. And, yeah, you know, it's it's relegated. It's it's made small. It's made manageable. And it's something that I can fight. I can at least, we can at least argue about, like, would you be the dummy that ran up the stairs and got trapped in the bedroom? Or would you know to go out the back door? Yeah. We can have those kinds of conversations about a horror movie. You know, how would you fight Freddy? How would you, you I just wouldn't go in the water. That's how I wouldn't get killed by Jaws. Yeah. We, we can actually talk about those things. And, and it actually helps us to catalog and, and feel good about how scary of a world it is. And so, okay, that brings us to point number three, which we've already kind of been touching on and getting to. Uh, what is point number three, Jake? It provides us with catharsis, right? So we have all of these realities that we know are real, mm-hmm. but we don't want to deal with them. Right. We don't want to think about them. We hide them, right? We hide our sin. We hide our guilt. We hide our shame. We hide our, We live in such terror of death and judgment that we spend most of our lives simply avoiding the, the very thought. We don't want to be alone in the room mm-hmm. with our thoughts. We, we want the TV on. We want the music on. You know, whatever we can do to distract ourselves from those realities, but that's not sustainable for anybody. One way or another, we have to deal with those realities. And horror movies provide us, and horror as a genre, not just movies, provide us with an opportunity to do that in a way that is controlled and safe. Mm-hmm. It's a controlled and safe outlet to do that, which isn't to say that it can't actually be helpful, right? But it is to say that uh, lots of people create things in this genre, and then use them as a way to, to whew, as you said earlier, put it to bed. Right. Right. Like these things just kind of keep building up in the back of my mind and I need a release. And it's not a coincidence that October is sort of the ritual month to do it mm-hmm. around the harvest time. The harvest right? does come in. It's getting cold. Death is around the corner. Harvest reminds us like, I mean, a harvest is a metaphor for judgment. The right? figure like, of death is a dude with a sickle. Like that's that's mm-hmm. what we of a culture as as Western culture have chosen. Like that's death. And that's because at the end of the day, God's going to gather us up and we're going to be examined by our fruits, right? And so there's going to be a harvest. And then with the harvest will come the judgment. And so it is a time where we all collectively decide, okay, this is the month out of the year where we're really going to dedicate time to processing our cultural mm-hmm. guilt and grief and whatever else and death and have some catharsis together sort of ritually culturally and then we'll just have our elections and go into the bloodbath Mm -hmm. yeah you know well actually i think it's what we need for christmas like right i mean what we don't get is the happy celebrations unless we've found some way to ritualistically purge ourselves of right the death and by the way catharsis it's not just when roy schneider says or more Roy Scheider, what's his name? When he says, Scheider. Scheider, when he says, smile, you jerk, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> and shoots Jaws and Jaws blows up. It's not just when Dr. Loomis shoots Michael Myers and he goes flying out the window and Jamie Strode is safe. It's not just when the heroes win and the, you know, the bad guys are defeated. It's when Michael claims his third victim in the movie. Yeah. It's when it's in the bloodletting mm-hmm. itself. You know, we have this conceit that we are more sophisticated than than these like pagan cults with their, right. you know, people like, cut themselves and they sacrifice, you know, they have all the, the bloody sacrifices and human sacrifice or whatever. Right. And then you're not, you're not talking about like modern cults of cheesy Satanists and robes. You're talking about like South American culture before the explorers came. Right. And, yeah. Uh, I'm talking about that sort of thing. You look, Babylon down, you look and, down on that sort of yeah. thing, but then we just have our own ritualized versions of that. We just do it. We and, have our bread and circuses. 
theater. And it does provide mm-hmm. release to see, even to watch a movie where the bad guy wins, where, you know, Freddie just claims his last victim and that's it, roll credits. We like that for several reasons. Number one, we, we, we like, I mean, we have the thought that I think any neurotic thinking person has at a funeral, which is not me, yeah. not me, that person, but not me, not this time. We have that thought, which is a relief mm-hmm. and a pressure. And then we just, we release some pressure. Like it's not just not me, but it's yes, them. We want to see someone else pay the price actually. And if they're kind of cute and virginal and didn't really deserve it, actually so much the better. Yeah. Well, they pay the price and they pay the price for me this year. Right. Right. And then we do it again next year. Yeah. Well, you can do some of the same things with an action movie, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on how bloody it is and what the attitude of it is, so to speak. Like can be the same vicarious catharsis. Yeah, I think a lot absolutely. of absolutely, and I think that yeah, they they do trade in that kind of bloodlust, and it's mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. Yeah, and there's crossover, and I think that there are some ways that because of the politics of action, that well, let me say it this way: the sexual politics of our culture have really dominated the action movie mm-hmm. in a way that it can't quite dominate. A horror movie. It can. I mean, it's going to. It's, there, people are going to try, but at the end of the day, you still have to get the scares, mm-hmm. right? Just like at the end of the day, in, the, in a comedy, you have to get the laughs. Right. To do that, you have to work. It's really hard to do that while working against nature. Um, and so an action movie can can skirt that and work around nature. And we talk about that all the time. Yeah. You know, the ways that they're sophisticated in action movies about working with nature while working against it. You know, Scarlett Johansson is going to be, mm-hmm. you know, very feminine in relation to our protagonists while also being able to kick. And so they've, you know, find, they find sophisticated ways to subvert nature while mm-hmm. working with the grain. Mm-hmm. And they can do the same thing in, in, in horror films, but I think horror films push us into a more primal right position and have to yeah yeah that's i think that's another place where horror and humor is is actually very similar because you can't you can't cheat what makes people laugh and what makes Mm -hmm. people afraid you can't you can't get around the fact that that god built us to believe certain things about reality as he made it and so it's not you know if we're just going to go with the sex angle it's, it's not very scary to watch a horror movie where the woman has none of the vulnerabilities that are attendant to her sex because that's not scary. Well, you know, you were talking off mic about the difference between the first Halloween movie and the last one. The right? most recent uh, 2018 Halloween movie where they, yeah, in the original Halloween, it's just a teenage girl and she's very, you know, she's set up to be a very normal teenage girl with, you know, the normal things that, a you know, she's just, she's just a teenage girl. Like, any teenage girl and she's and you know her friends are killed and then she's stalked through the last third of the movie by michael myers and she has to hide in the closet and she's crying and she's screaming she's trying to get help and it's very scary and a very effective and one of the most classic horror movies of all time because that's about what would happen and we can all put ourselves and we can all imagine our daughter in that situation and it's just like it's really scary and the new one they reverse it. They tell this like feminist empowerment story where, you know, Laurie Strode has been waiting her whole life to, for a rematch once Michael gets out of prison or whatever. And she set her house with booby traps and she's got her, she's been practicing with guns and she's got all the stuff. And she, and there's a moment in the late in the movie where she turns the tables on him and the audience claps and everything. But the one thing the audience isn't doing while they're clapping is actually being, scared like maybe it actually functions in a weird way as like a bloody action movie that people can enjoy i don't think that's a good thing but i think it's effective you know it works i guess but the one thing that nobody is at that point is scared because because the movie's lying to you the movie's saying actually you can turn when death comes for you when judgment comes for you when unstoppable evil comes for you you can you can just stop it. <laughs> you, if you, you know, if you've prepared for it, you can turn the tables and kick its butt. Right. You know that's an that's an action movie premise. It's not a horror movie premise. Right. And and I think at the end of the day, when they're done well, and it's much harder to do a horror movie well or a horror horror story, but I would say both are acceptable forms for a wise godly person to work in. Like you could tell a story about how judgment's coming and 
you can't really stop it. You can also tell a story about here's how you stand up against evil and here's how God lets us win. And Yeah, and even in often, especially when the evil feels overwhelming and insurmountable, right. you, know, you can evoke that feeling of Gideon having his army widowed, winnowed down to 600 men or whatever it was and going out and then God gives the victory. Right, precisely. So God can bear his arm and show off. And you can tell that story a hundred different ways and see Tolkien, mm -hmm. you know, like. Yeah. Uh, but what you can't do is say that that's an effective scary story because it's, it's not scary. <laughs> and it doesn't provide that catharsis, actually. I mean, I suppose in our society is so dumb and so deadened and so feminist that they go and watch Halloween 18, uh, circa eight, 2018 and they're like, yeah, women really can kick ultimate evil's butt. This is great. But man, I mean, what a shallow catharsis that is. Well, yeah, what they can do is they can go and say, this affirms my... My politics. My politics, exactly. This affirms my prejudices and biases. This is, affirms the way that I wish the world actually worked instead of the way that it does. So then it doesn't and cannot provide the catharsis that, that yeah. people want. Yeah, and I'll tell you, like the only parts of that movie that are at all scary or effective or interesting are like before she turns the tables, you know, like when we're actually scared for the characters, like in the movie, you know, like how horror movies work. Is there anything else we want to say about catharsis? There's the feeling of not me. There's the feeling of yes, them. There's the feeling of, whew, I've dealt with that thing that I've been avoiding and not dealing with. Mm -hmm. And now I can quiet myself, put it to bed for a time until I need, until I, you know, kind of my fears sort of choke me up or come up, rise up against me again. Mm -hmm. There's also the feeling of I've looked and it didn't break me. Mm -hmm. I saw the corpse by the side of the road and I still have my sanity. I saw how evil it could really be. I saw how much a person can be broken, how much a body can be broken, how much a spirit can be broken. And it didn't break me. And it didn't, and it didn't break me. There's that aspect. I transgressed and I was okay. Actually, I crossed the line. I looked at the corpse and I'm still okay. I mean, it's, it's interesting how little, how much a horror movie or a horror story gives us that feeling and how little it actually prepares us for any of the horrors in real life, I had an experience not too long ago of uh, disposing of a dead cat. And I've seen a million horror movies, folks. Not proud of it, but it's true. You know, I've looked death in the face, <laughs> cinematically speaking. But you know what I didn't want to do is look that cat in the face because it's, yeah. it's disgusting and weird and uncanny and uncomfortable to look a creature that I knew that was playful and furry and fun and warm and purred. And now it's this dead thing with empty eyes and there's flies on it and its mouth is hanging open, not because it's hungry or meowing or whatever, but just because it no longer has, life has control. It. The anim the thing that made this cat be what it is has been taken from it and it's disgusting. And I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And you'd think like, I should have some preparation for that. I've watched movies about killer cats. Like I've, I've seen cat, <laughs> cat co corpses. I watched Pet Cemetery. I... I've been preparing for this my whole life. <laughs> but you know what? It I wasn't I mean I did I did what I had to do. I I got rid of the cat before the kids had to see it, but it wasn't like I was prepared, you know? And when my grandpa died, it's not like I was really prepared. Like death is worse than any kind of catharsis dealing with it can make it actually. It's not that we don't use entertainment in a in a way that's good, I think sometimes to help ourselves process these things. But at the end of the day, death is worse than any movie can portray it. Judgment is worse and hell is worse. You know, it does, if you're a person who goes to hell and is there for eternity, it doesn't matter how many Hellraiser movies you've watched, how many hostels, how, many, how much torture porn you watched, it's worse. You didn't put it, you didn't deal with it and then cathartically put it into bed, so now you're ready. You're not ready. It's worse. So it, it is catharsis. It's also really cheap catharsis that doesn't do that much. It can help. I mean, most, you know, watching Halloween doesn't really help. But, you know, like reading Lord of the Rings can help a little bit. But let's not 
let's not elevate it beyond the relatively small, inconsequential and incidental thing that it is. Well, I mean, okay, how can it help? The ways that it can help really come down to if it awakens in you that any reality of, yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to die. And mm-hmm. I need to, I need to live as though I'm going to die. I need to be aware. Oh yeah. There are spiritual forces that work in this world beyond just the material. Oh yeah. Hey, let me take a long, good look at myself here mm-hmm. and how I reacted and how I responded to this scenario and situation. Would I really step up in the face of evil? Do I really have that in me? Like, I, I'd better, I'd better be the kind of man that when the monsters are coming for my wife and kids, that's ready to step up. Yeah, am I the guy at the beginning of the movie who's like the janitor that just gets it to to, to show everybody else that they should be scared, or am I the guy at the end of the movie that's stepping between? the victims and the and the monster monster i think that leads us nicely into our next point which is horror tends to reduce us to our reduce us to our primal natures it 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 makes us ask those questions and those are and it makes us feel those questions viscerally who am i what would i be what would i do how did i feel while i was watching this actually and what does that say about me Mm -hmm. those are pretty interesting questions and again again also you go to an action movie you go to certain dramas to ask and answer some of those questions as well it's it's why every man loves die hard right because he wants to imagine that he'd be the guy that goes across the broken glass yeah he's the schlubby guy we all know we all know i wouldn't i'd be just as dumb as john mcclane and i would end up with no shoes because i'm that dumb but would i walk across the glass right that's the question that we all want to answer Mm-hmm. Yes, to and die hard for the space of two hours. Let's let's all be as lame as John McClane and then as cool as John, John McClane. McClane. Yeah, and we love it. I mean, that movie is calculated. His wife wants to divorce him at the beginning of the movie, not by the end. Not by the end, buddy. <laughs> then they have to recycle the divorce premise every movie. Right. <laughs> well, there never should have been another Die Hard movie. I actually like all the Die Hard movies. Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. But uh, I've not seen any but the first. You know, there's some fun moments in some of those other ones. Sure. But in yeah. terms of a just a sturdy premise, the only one that ever had it was Die Hard One. As much as we all love Die Hard to Die Harder. (laughs) (laughs) Horror movies, in the very act of watching them, tend to reduce us to our primal nature. It's why jocks like to take chicks to horror movies. Yeah, the jock wants to go and come away feeling like, you know, most of what the jock wants is for the girl. Yeah, he doesn't care how he feels. Yeah, to come away feeling like she's she's on the arm of the guy who would have made it to the end of the movie. Right. Who would stand between her and the monster. He wants her to feel vulnerable, mm-hmm. more inclined by the end of the movie to look to and lean on him and see him as somebody that she can she can be completely vulnerable because she's got him. Right. And that works to the jock's advantage because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he's got other goals He's got in other mind. goals, yeah. Right. But that's the... But, but that is part of it. Like that's why, that's why the appeal is there. If the jock goes into the movie and comes away feeling validated for being the kind of guy that would fight a monster, and a girl goes into that movie and feels like I can actually be feminine mm-hmm. in a position of vulnerability here because I have somebody who will protect me, then I mean, while jocks use this very cynically for certain purposes that we've now alluded to. I, I don't want to altogether reject the notion that there's actually something pretty good about a story that reduces us to our primal essences that reminds us, if you are a father, then you are protector. And, you and better... that's your job. And that's the expectation. Yep. And when the it doesn't matter what the politics say, when when it all hits the fan, everybody's looking at you. You're the only thing that's left. The dumb, I mean, the funny thing about those movies is the actual jock in the movie always dies right? in about, you know, maybe two thirds, he'll make it two thirds of the way through, if that. But it's always just like fake machismo does not stand up very well against a Jason or a Freddy or a 
Leatherface right. or, or whatever. Right. But the but the the dad, the father figure that is going to step in at at the last minute, mm-hmm. at the eleventh hour, with his wisdom, his experience, and his guts, and his willingness to fall on his sword if that's what it takes. Like that's the one. That's and- the one that saves the day. And that's it's great to be reminded of of that. And it's great to have a movie that allows when all your action movies are about making sure women are just men. I mean, are just men. Yeah, men in tights. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Uh, Here's a place where it only really works if women are required to assume mm-hmm. a more vulnerable role, right? A more vulnerable position where they where they need to be protected, where they revert to the type of damsel in distress. And you know, there's a certain kind of the more fearful and in need of control a woman is, the more uncomfortable she is in that position. Mm-hmm. But she is in that position because but that's she where is put because her. that's the reality, yeah. right? So being confronted with that reality can be good and mm-hmm. be helpful. If she realizes that she's got a man next to her that actually can protect her. And isn't actually just a jock who wants to trade that for sex. Yeah, but is actually actually loves her. Mm-hmm. Actually thinks she's worth fighting for and worth dying for. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, interesting sidebar here. That character traditionally has existed through the 70s and even into the 80s. Halloween, we alluded to it earlier. Dr. Loomis is the is Michael Myers' psychiatrist. He saw that little Michael was evil when he was 11 years old and he stabbed his sister to death. He's been in the home, you know, in the in chains since then. Dr. Loomis knew it. He had the expertise. He saw, he looked evil in the eye. He didn't flinch. And then Michael gets out, goes on his killing spree, stalks poor Jamie Lee Curtis through the movie. And then who should show up at the end? But Dr. Loomis, you know, ready to go. Take care of the, takes care of the problem. That was always the formula. Dracula had its Van Helsing. You know, I mean, Van Helsing's kind of the template for this kind of right. character. It's interesting to note, A, that that character has always existed until stupid modern sexual politics ruined it. And suddenly the girl had to be the one at the very, you know, after being vulnerable, after being feminine, after being scared, the whole movie. She has to find a way to be empowered. At some, yeah. And it's always completely arbitrary. Right, like there's nothing that jives with her, how she's acting through most of the movie, and then what she does at the it's end. It's just like this whole movie. We have to, we have to get the thrills, and so we have to play to reality. But then we're just going to sell politics you a pure fantasy. demand, yeah, that we end in pure fantasy. Yeah, yeah, and it's just it's and that we subvert. It's unconscionable. That's what it is. But up and up, even through the '80s, even through a lot of those really terrible and depraved and stupid. And not well made, you know, Friday the 13th and Nightmares on Elm Street and things like that. It was often a male character that would come in at the end. The other thing that, though, that it, the second point that's interesting to note is it's almost always a father figure, actually. It's a Van Helsing. It's someone who's too old to be sexually compatible with the young lady, generally, and is someone who's awesome and expert and knows his stuff, understands that evil exists while everyone else wants to deny it, and is ready to take the necessary steps at the end. And if it's a young guy, then it's like a Jonathan Harker in Dracula type situation where it's the young guy who's just keying off of and being told what to do. And he will generally be the spouse or the, not the spouse so much in modern stuff, but the, you know, he'll be, he he might be the boyfriend. He'll be the love interest. He'll be the love interest. He'll be the person who's sexually compatible with the female who's in danger. But he's, he only knows what to do because there's some dad-type mm-hmm. character who really has the gravitas and the dignity and the knowledge mm-hmm. and the wisdom to, to take care of business. It's generally not that a young man can just destroy evil all by himself. Yeah. He still has a much better chance of doing it than a young woman who just, in the classic mold of these stories, can't. I mean, she's, she's dead if somebody doesn't help her. But... It's be the scary German guy in Monster Squad. It could be the scary German guy in Monster Squad. An awesome movie that all our listeners <laughs> shouldn't watch, probably. Um, yeah, probably not. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure even what to make of that. Maybe it just means that God is a father and his fatherhood's in the universe. And ultimately, we'd all rather, we all, belie- we all have an easier time believing that daddy would save us than husband or boyfriend even. Yeah, we can all, as an audience, like every one of us, we can enter into 
Yay, Daddy's here. Mufasa's here to sweep sweep the hyenas away. Well, and and that's what that's part of what's smart about a movie like A Quiet Place, which mm-hmm. I'm gonna pull into this. I know it's not like a It's very know, gentle as far as the genre goes. Yeah, it's but, not a classic horror movie by any stretch. No, I, but it I hits all that, these things actually better than a lot of modern well, crappy horror movies because they're all trying to subvert the genre, whereas it just well, so you need a, you need a father figure who's going to save the day. You want him to be a love interest, so let's give him actual kids. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's just smart about a lot of those aspects of it. Like he can be handsome, he can be the love interest in the film, but he can also be the father figure because he's got some kids that he has to take care of here. And we're going to mitigate some of that tension by having I forget whether it's the teenage daughter or son, but we're going to have a kid. I think it's his son, right? Who's like, I don't really know whether I can look to this guy or not. I feel tension <clears throat> about this. And then the tension. I'm afraid. Be, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's the, you know, there's the older daughter, you know, who feels sort of like the outcast and it's her fault that baby brother died or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's the boy. Right. Who's younger than her. And she wants to be able to go and protect and do the things. And dad's like, nope, you need to help your mom and son, you need to come with me and you need to learn how to protect mom and sister and mm-hmm. and he's terrified and doesn't trust dad and dad has to work hard to it's a very trad movie that way yeah <laughs> but it it pays for its tradness by having that silly last shot of emily blunt and big sister cocking yeah, a shotgun cocking a shotgun yeah getting ready to take on the the monsters while brother who was was scared in the early part of the movie and dad was working to set up to be the protector is in the corner holding the baby yeah and then the dumb cows in the audience on open night. No offense to all you dumb cows out there. Cheer as she chops, as she uh, as she cocks the shotgun. Yeah, I actually think in just because of the world around us, it's stupid and it's pandering and it's lame. Within the confines of the movie, taken as its own kind of artifact, it, it actually sort of works. Like it's, it's, it's not that bad if no. you if you put it in the context. If you remember it in the context. You, first of all, you can't separate it. You can't say it's just not a political moment. No, it is, but... But it is, but... As a thought experiment. But the reality is, Dad was the driving force of that movie. Dad was the one who set the bound... Dad was the one who was going out. Dad was the one who was it, figuring out how to fish. Dad was the one who was figuring out the ear device and the video monitors, and Dad set them up. Mm-hmm. That's whole goal was I'm going to be, if, if somebody dies, it's going to be me and I'm going to do everything I can to be sure that if and when that happens, they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. If something happens to me, they're going to be okay. And so, yeah, it's a moment of empowerment, but the empowerment came from dad. Right. Like period. Yeah. And so because there's that line, dad set them up for this dad set them up to succeed and dad's sacrifice dad's hard work dad's provision dad's protection and dad's sacrifice made it possible for mom to be there cocking the gun Mm -hmm. it still works yeah in a perfect world where we don't have all these politics if if the movie would 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 still actually work and it would just be like yay she's you know she's leading forward with the mantle of her husband's authority because what else is she supposed what to else do is she's supposed to do i'm glad he set everything up so well for his family what a great guy dad's rule yeah doesn't quite work that way but hey there's a reason it didn't feel more like more of a betrayal yeah than it actually did but it is you know ultimately just to return to our main point these movies reduce us to our primal nature to masculine to feminine to, to things that are very basic about us. Yeah, what I think of when I think of the vulnerable female protagonist or whatever is the, so to speak, primordial mm-hmm. memory that woman has of how Adam didn't protect Eve. And so there she is by herself against the monster or the evil. If you wanted to be all Jordan Peterson about it, you could say it's the first horror story, right? You've got yeah. satanic... You got Ultimate the dragon. Evil. You've got the girl, and you've got the guy, and the guy has you know it's that stupid meme. You had one job, you know, yeah, just to stand between 
The dragon and the girl. Dragon and the girl. You don't. Destruction, death, <laughs> temptation, and fall. Hell. Hell. For all mankind. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe, I mean, if not to get too young in or too Jordan Peterson about it, but maybe that's why we don't have more horror movies where the guy saves the day. Maybe that's why we actually just want dad to come and save the day because our, what did you say, Ben? Our, our primordial sense memory is actually- I mean, how The many, guy failed. How, how the many, guy failed, yeah. Well, how many of those, those dads, when they show up in those movies, were actually- The, the cause- of what's going on? Yeah, either the cause or they they were the they were the the love interest in a different story or in the same story and they were, failed. And they failed. Right. Yeah. Right? Like and they learned and now they're not going to let it happen again. Right. Right? Like that's part of the trope, right? Yeah. I mean the 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 reason why somebody shows up even even in the, even this stupid psychiatrist in Halloween exactly. In Halloween yeah. is he failed. Yeah, he like, let Michael escape. He let Michael escape like when he was the young man it was his job and he failed. But now he's an old man and he's he's going to make it right. And he failed to change Michael into something that wasn't terrifying. He had this right. guy as a kid and it's like, you're a psychiatrist. Your job is to help him not murder people. And it turns out he couldn't do it because ultimate evil is unstoppable. But dad can still come in and protect us for a time at least from ultimate evil. Until the next movie. Until the next Until movie. Until the next movie. But yeah, I mean, it's only in the modern era that, you know, you watch like an old Dracula movie or something like that, or any of those movies through the 30s, well, 20s, through the, through the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, even as things started to get pretty brutal and nihilistic in the 70s, you're, you're going to have dad show up at the end and, and save the day. It's just how things work. The priests and the exorcist are successful. They both die, but they save the little girl from being possessed it works it's a good story it's what we believe in ben uh what is so that that leads us nicely i think into our fifth point yeah which which is what ben uh, which is implicit in everything we've been saying which is that there is a moral order and horror movies establish it that's how they work they work by reminding you yeah there is sin yeah there is death they have to trade on moral the moral order of how god made the world in order to be effective right and therefore They're a reminder that there is a moral order. Yeah. And and sometimes the moral order of the films is going to be bunk, but there will be a moral order. Even for a, a horror movie that pretends to be like an amoral mm-hmm. movie, it's just pure nihilism. You can't. It's trading on it, the It only works. That, yeah. It's, it's not an interesting movie. You, know, you watch It's some, only it's interesting insofar as it, you know, people know that it's in contrast to- like. Oh, the actual order of things. It's not supposed to yeah. work. You watch a really, you know, cannibal holocaust or something that's just pure nihilism, pure death, pure destruction. All the heroes are dead. All the bad guys are triumphant. Everything is broken and bloody and terrible at the end. Why would you bother watching that unless it was transgressive, unless it actually was pushing against something? If that was just the way that the world was, if that was just what you in your heart of hearts accepted, then you wouldn't really need to watch a movie about it. And a movie about it wouldn't be intrinsically interesting or cathartic or compelling or or right. anything else. I mean, it's exactly what we said about humor. Uh, the uh, Incongruity only exists in relation to congruity. Surprise only exists in relation to predictability, to pattern. Atonal music only exists in relation to tonal music, to mm-hmm. melody, to rhythm. Abstract painting only exists in relation to painting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and a big part of the moral order in these movies, like we've been talking about a bunch of times in different ways, is the sexual order Mm. that God built in. Like the difference between men and women, the reason that horror movies work is because they pull you into that difference, like it or not, even though feminism, I'm sure, will win in the sense that it will figure out how to make not very good horror movies that invert sexual order. Well, in a Jungian kind of Campbellian sense, there's really only two stories and it's will good defeat evil and will the guy get the girl there's really only death and sex those are the only two interesting things or shall we say death and life death and procreation death and man and woman i mean and and child these are realities at the center of of who we are and so that's what it's all about you can't twist it perversify or corrupt it the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and he will strike his heel Mm -hmm. yeah 
And so maybe a horror movie wants to ask, what if that didn't happen? Wouldn't that be creepy? <laughs> yeah. And the answer is, yeah, I, I guess. Interesting question. Well, I think that brings us to the last thing, correct me if I'm wrong, that we wanted to hit, which is should Christians be watching this? Because one thing that we keep saying without directly saying is that horror movies are transgressive. They set up a moral order and then they invite you to do things that you know you sh- like you know you shouldn't enjoy watching mm-hmm. people get killed in all kinds of gruesome ways and watching i don't know horror movies have sex scenes often mm-hmm. don't they and, yeah. if so, it, and if there's a movie or a genre that's designed to be a substitute gospel mm-hmm. it's this it's the genre yeah. right it's not that it's good news but it is designed to deal with what the good news of the gospel deals with which is the demonic sin, death, and, and the sin. devil. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah, and it's always sad. I've I've been around these circles enough to meet these people, the people who really just haven't given their lives to loving this stuff. You know, the nerds mm-hmm. at at like the horror section of Comic Con or whatever, the guy in the comic book store or the board game store who just loves this stuff. There's something that's really sick and depressing about a person i'm thinking of a specific i'm thinking of lots of specific people that i've met but there was one guy that used to go around a town that i lived in who i don't know if he was homeless or what but if you went like i i went to enough horror things that he showed up to there was like a play like the university put on a dracula play he was there you know he'd show up at those things and he'd want to talk to you about like well this this is what dracula is really about you know he had dead eyes and he wore this black fright wig uh, and he was kind of weird and effeminate and fat. I mean, I think, sorry, but I think it's interesting to note and worth noting that he was he was overweight. The only catharsis, the only theology that this guy really has, the only philosophy that his life is built on is the catharsis of these exact things. And there's something really small, something really sad, and something really broken. I mean, I, I guess that's just the obvious thing to say in the world. Like, what could be more obvious than to say that? But if you're a Christian who isn't around the subculture, maybe you haven't actually met somebody whose gospel is explicitly Halloween. If you meet that person, it's a very sad person. If you can imagine that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, like I said, it's very small. This guy wasn't prepared to deal with the dead cats in his life. He wasn't prepared to deal with his mom dying. He wasn't, I mean, I don't know. I didn't, so I talked to him about his mom dying, but I'm just, I'm asserting he wasn't prepared to deal with death and judgment. He wasn't any better equipped for it than any of us who don't trade in the transgressive. In fact, he was much worse equipped for it, but he was able to distract himself on a daily basis by feeding himself a little transgression. Hmm. And of course, you, get, you become deadened to it, and then you have to feed yourself things that are more transgressive and more transgressive. And uh, sometimes you enter into very real depravity and go to jail. Sometimes you just waste your life on really depraved spectacles of entertainment, quote unquote. But it's sad. I think our, our, our definition of horror was so broad that I'm not going to say no, like there's not an example you can name that I'd say, oh, sure, that's... That's fine. That's godly. That's good. That's a good story. Well told and useful. I I think you can do all these things, and I think you could probably name examples that do them. I mean, okay, Quiet Place. I think that's a pretty good movie. I don't know. Yeah. Not something to watch all the time and delight in in a perverse way, but it's a good movie. Yeah, it's Um, a story of a family up against scary evil and seemingly insurmountable odds. And they got to work together and dad saves the day and mm-hmm. yay. And it's suspenseful and it's scary and all that. And sad. And sad. So I'm not going to say you can never do it, but but having made those having made those caveats in favor of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where we talked about this. Maybe we talked about it in the aesthetic series that was, we were recording these parts, not at the same time that we recorded uh, like our parts on cinema and books and stuff. Um, so maybe if somebody's listening <clears> to this whole series for the first time, they'll have just heard it, but I, I really don't remember. We record so many things. We talked about how watching a sad scene in a movie where like the best friend dies or the dad dies or whatever, it doesn't actually prepare you for it in real life. And in fact, it gives you a false expectation of what it should feel like. Yeah. And it makes you think that that music's going to be playing exactly. in the background and there's yep. going to be a close up on your as tears stream down your beautiful face. And it's just like, 
that's not the reality. It might be very mundane. It might be it might be any number of things. It might be gross. It might be mundane. It might be it might be anything, right? But mm-hmm. what it's not going to be is that. Yeah. Hmm. So Cinematic you, melodrama. Yeah. Do you, do you never watch a Spielberg movie? Then that's not what I'm saying. Do you never watch? Do you never get any uh, Aristotelian catharsis out of a work of entertainment? No, I, I think it's just fine to do that in a controlled, godly way. But horror generally is pretty cheap and not very helpful and oftentimes actively harmful. Yesterday or the day before or something, I woke up like I was half asleep and then I woke up and you know how you have thoughts when you're half asleep yeah. and you're waking up. All my thoughts were like, heaven and hell are all there is <laughs> and everyone who doesn't know Jesus is going to hell. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking of like the world in Evansville, where I live now, mm-hmm. and just thinking like, that's crazy. I don't want to think about that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was thinking. And the rest of the day, I was thinking, I have to think about this. I'm not allowed to not think about that. And I thought about how many times I've used entertainment, not specifically horror, because I don't really like horror, mm-hmm. but in many kinds of entertainment, including stuff with horror in it, to distract myself from that thought yep. mm-hmm. all the time. All the time. And I think, actually, that's one of the hardest things to do as a Christian in this culture is not use entertainment to distract yourself in that it's way. It's so abundant. Mm-hmm. It's our most abundant resource. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is. it really is. It entertainment is, is it our is. most abundant resource. For mm-hmm. $5 a month, you can get access to every bit of music the world has ever made. And for it's about crazy. fifteen, you know, for, for 10 to $15 a month, but for $7 a month, everything Disney's ever done. For another, what, 10 or $12 a month, uh, HBO Max, Netflix. If I decide that I want to watch- Universal's for free. Yeah. Just sign up mm. for Peacock. If I, yeah. if I decide that I want to reanimate the corpse of Charlie Chaplin and watch him do something that he did 100 years ago, I mean, literally 100 years ago, and I just want to make him go through that again for my amusement- all I have to do is like push two buttons and spend three dollars, and suddenly that's right. He's Charlie Chaplin's right there doing the same thing that he did for my great great grandfather's amusement or, or, or whatever it is. It's, yeah. it's an insane, super cheap world that we live in, pumped right into your living room. We take it so for granted, and it's so weird and it's so crazy. It's really weird. It's straight out of sci fi, mm-hmm. it's straight out of all the stupid dystopian sci fi <laughs> of the middle of the last century. Mm-hmm. There it is. Like, you can't go to the gas station. It's just like, uh, I mean, Back to the Future he gave us this idea, right? Like, you can't go to the, to the gas station without a video screen popping up and people talking to you. Yeah. And trying to sell you more stuff and trying to... <laughs> Still no self-tying shoes, though. Nike actually did it. Still but, no what? But they did they still no self-tying shoes, though. They just did a limited run of them. Well... For a gimmick, yeah, and they, I think they probably charge like hoverboards, man, hoverboards, or something like that. But no, it's but yeah, it's yeah. I want those hoverboards. I want those hoverboards too. Awesome. Um, We would would all die if we had hoverboards like that. (laughs) Yeah, but what a way to go! What a way to go! (laughs) (laughs) That'd be cathartic. And yep, that's right. That would be cathartic, and that would represent a good escape from reality. And. So Perfect. in our in our humor uh, segment or whatever you want to call it that we recorded, we talked about Thomas Watson and what a great preacher and all the metaphors that he used. Ben, you just made me think of one that uh, that comes back to me often, which is I don't remember where I think maybe in the Lord's Prayer somewhere, eh, maybe not. I don't know. He's talking about eternity and he's talking about hell, and he says, uh, "Picture a beach, and then try to count the sand, and then." Say that every every particle of sand on that beach is a year in hell, and then deplete the beach, and there's still more hell. It's pretty effective. Uh, I mean, pretty awful. There's still more. It's really scary, and there are things that are worth being scared of. That is the other thing that's maybe worth saying about horror. Actually, is I mean, is it's riffing maybe a little bit on don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can throw body and soul into hell. Yep. Actually, Satan's not ultimately who we have to contend with. Yeah, he's not the scary one. Yeah, be, beware of him. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeing, seeking whom he, he may devour. But 
The but real scary one is is God. Is God and horror? The one that the seraphim hide their faces from. Hmm. The the seraphim that are described as something more horrific mm-hmm. than anything you could possibly imagine in a horror film. Yeah, right. They hide their faces from them. Yeah. And and that that is actually one of the corrupting and bad things about horror movies, I think, is they posit the fact that the scariest thing that you'll ever have to face is evil. And it's not. It's holiness. Yeah, it's not, that's not mm. true at all. Maybe you could say the scariest thing you'll, you'll ever have to face is your evil. And that sort of gets at it. Sort of. Gets at sort it. Sort of. But, but it still doesn't tell the whole story. But it's holiness. That's yeah. the scary thing. Yeah. It's the It's the holy, holy, holy. And I do want to say there is something that I've observed in me that's very atheistic that is drawn to horror movies. Like, especially when I was a teenager and was watching a lot of these kinds of things. It's like, it's really hard to believe in a holy God, but it's relatively easy for for me to, and much more comfortable actually, and fun (laughs) for me to believe in a unholy superpower that's satanic and all-encompassing quote-unquote and mm-hmm. it's evil like uh, a it's hard to picture it's so far beyond me and b i don't really want to picture ultimate good and so a nice substitute in terms of something to kind of worship and enjoy and feel the you know power of is ultimate evil and that's not good and that is a lie that horror is telling you that it's it's the catharsis again of horror i guess it's just another way of saying the catharsis that it offers is really really cheap and the picture of the world that it paints is really really small actually was the was a quiet place fun yes view of did it, did it have some things that are kind of nice for men and women and families and dads and moms to remember sure uh did it paint a comprehensive picture of our standing in the universe not so much but when something feels that big and that primal, it can kind of pretend to. I mean, I guess it's like that's an obvious thing to say, but it's not actually that obvious when you're when you're engaged in a ritual sacrifice of bloodletting. It feels like it is painting a big, broad picture. That's why it's attractive. So the answer to your question, Ben, no, unless you should sometimes <laughs> <laughs> as part right. of a balanced diet. <laughs> a balanced diet. Cool. All right. Do we do we think that this episode was spooktacular? <laughs> it was horrifically good. <laughs> <laughs> A gorgantuan success. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>